Good evening, everybody. Um, it's, a, it's an incredible, incredible pleasure to be back. Uh, it's just lovely to see all the familiar faces. I have to tell you, leaving Orange County, I left behind two um, very great stories, right? The first was, I think, the best comment I've ever had after a lecture, which was, that was fabulous. I've got no idea what you were talking about. But, that was, but it was just great to listen. So I will, I will do... Hello, Brian. Welcome. So I will do my very... We met in Jerusalem. Um, I will do my very best um, to make sure that you don't understand the word that I'm talking about. And just to kick us off in high gear, I've chosen Derrida. And it's pretty safe because I don't understand a word either. So, you know, it's, uh, we're, we're going to be fine. Um, I really wanted to talk about Derrida here in, in Orange County because he spent so many years here. Uh, he was very, very connected to, the, to, to UC Irvine. Um, and there's actually the largest collection of original Derrida manuscripts in the world is here in UC Irvine. So if you want to go and check it out, you can go and look at him and you'll see that he's even harder to understand than I am. So, um, so that's the one thing. The second thing that I wanted to say just before I start um, is to be perfectly honest with you, one of the most um, meaningful and traumatic events in my life took place here. Um, and without going into too many details, I have to tell you something very simple and straightforward. That the most comforting thing that happened to me during the course of my shiva was on the day that I got home. The day I got home, I switched on my computer and I had 83 emails just from people in Orange County. And I burst into tears. I was so moved. I don't know how to thank you all enough. Um, it was just something that will stay with me forever. I have a special affection in my heart for this place forever, and I appreciate it very, very much. You are wonderful people. Thank you. And it's just a pleasure to be back. And um, having said warm words, I'm now going to talk about a subject that I hope nobody will understand. <laughs> the truth is that um, the story of the Akedah that we encounter so early on in the biblical narrative is a story that intuitively we all want to explain away. Right? It troubles us, and it troubles us, and it troubles us. How come God commands Abraham to take his son, his only son, the son that he loves, and take him up to the top in a place that I will show you and kill this child? child, young adult. The Midrash makes a big deal of trying to show us he's actually a lot older which makes it so... I have to stop. <laughs> Shalom, Mira. Which makes it so... Which makes it so... It makes it so much easier to reconcile and understand. So what? He was 37 years old. That makes it easy. So he was, you know, he was an accomplice. But the truth is that the Akedah is a question, is a question that, that just does not go away. It's a question that doesn't go away. It continues to disturb us. It disturbs us, not because murder is something that's unheard of, or even that human sacrifice is something that's unheard of. It disturbs us because it fundamentally contradicts what we want to think and feel about the persona of God. So ultimately, the story of the Akedah is a fundamentally theological story. And it raises for us fundamentally difficult theological questions. 
And the overwhelming, the overwhelming experience is the experience of a text that does not fit in. It does not fit in. And the thing that's so striking about the way in which certain philosophers have read this text, and of course this is a text that has been read over and over and over. The thing that is so striking about the way in which certain philosophers read this text, I'm going to be really talking about two this evening. I'm going to talk about a little bit, not much. More by inference, I'll say a few words about Kierkegaard, and I'm more interested in the way in which Derrida reads Kierkegaard. But what is striking about the way in which Derrida reads the Akedah is that he turns it into the normative text of religion. Rather than being the exception to the rule, the text doesn't fit in. How come is the natural response to a text like this? Rather than presenting it in those terms, Derrida gives us a flavor of the Akedah as the normative text of Judaism. It's quite striking. Not just, not just of theology, but of Judaism. Derrida is not really a Jewish thinker. He's Jewish. He was actually born in Algeria, and his name was Elie Derry when he was born, right? But he became Jacques Derrida. And his Jewishness is, is perhaps all the way through his life a very, a very complicated issue for him. Later on in his life, Derrida started writing about biblical texts. He started writing about Jewish texts. And of all of his writings, this particular one is the one that I think is most explicitly and most openly Jewish. Um, there are many things in Derrida that feel much more Christian or very blatantly secular, but there is something deeply religious and deeply, and deeply Jewish about the way in which he reads the story of the Akedah. Now, what I'd like to do, because this isn't simple stuff, what I would like to do is before I start reading the text with you, I'd like to say one or two words about some of the fundamental themes that play out in a lot of Derrida's writing, in a lot of his work. He's a difficult philosopher. Um, and it's, it, it's kind of helpful to have a sense of one or two of the key concepts. And once we've got a, once we've got a sense of one or two of the key concepts, I think we'll be, able, we'll be able to jump into the text. And I'm going to try, in a fairly ambulatory way, to walk you through the text, literally to lead you through it and see the process that he wants us um, to go through the process that he wants us to go through as we are reading it. So the first thing to say about Derrida is that Derrida belongs to the school that I would refer to as anti-philosophers rather than philosophers. Um, when we spoke months back about Wittgenstein, I made the same claim. Right? Derrida, in a similar way to Wittgenstein, I don't know if that's on the internet. If you can, it is, okay. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just go onto iTunes, apparently. <laughs> Um, but Derrida, Derrida belongs to the school of, of anti-philosophers, which means that he's less interested in actually telling us things than he is in disturbing our assumptions about things that we think are self-evident. Derrida wants to disturb our assumptions. He wants to create a sense of, of breach, a sense of breach. He actually wrote an absolutely outrageous essay called Sil Confession, in which he analyzes his own, it really is outrageous, it's pornographic, he analyzes his own Brit Mila, right, in, in graphic detail. And that's what he's interested in. He's interested in the scar. He's, Mila means a word. He's interested in the scar of language. He's interested in the gap between a word 
and the thing that a word pretends to be. Now that's a very difficult gap to understand. But if I, if I can recognize that the word of something, the word that I use to refer to something, is really only the name for that thing and not the thing itself, right? This is complicated. Then I recognize that the word draws its meaning not from its relationship to the thing outside, right? It's not because this is a phone that the word phone means phone. The phone means phone because I use it that way in language. In other words, it's self-referential. It goes back on itself. So anytime I claim that something is something else, by giving a name to it, by stamping it, Derrida is in the business of showing me, well, it doesn't quite necessarily work like that. It can work like that, but not self-evidently so. Derrida is interested in exposing the contingencies that we have set into place, the thumbprints that we have set into place, when we assume that something means something. Now this is the central idea in Derrida's work. You can't get anywhere without it. And it's a word that we use and we tend to misuse in, in common parlance. But that's what deconstruction is, right? Deconstruction doesn't mean sussing somebody out or finding out their ulterior motives. That's the way in, in common, I don't know about in Orange County, but in common parlance people say, oh, we can deconstruct that. And it means I'm gonna figure out what was really going on underneath when you said, you know, I'm, I'm going to support England in the game against the United States, but you know, what, what was I really thinking? Um, that's not what deconstruction is about. That really still hurts, I can't get over it. Yes. I just can't get past it. But you're Scottish. Oh yeah, I know, but it's still, it's the motherland. It just doesn't work, it just doesn't work. There is a, there is, there is, there is a much deeper and much more serious meaning to deconstruction. Deconstruction does not come along to tell me that a phone isn't a phone. That's not the idea. It comes along to expose the contingency and to say it ain't necessarily so. That's the fundamental purpose of deconstruction. But when you accomplish that, it's not so much a statement as it is an activity. It's an activity which is an activity of permanent, constant interrogation of everything, because everything can be interrogated. And since everything can be interrogated, there is no certainty and there is no tyranny of the truth. It's a political move. There is no tyranny of the truth. I know the truth and therefore. Because the truth itself, the word, is already a construction. So I'm going to expose that construction. So God is good, or God is moral, right? That would be a slightly bigger example of a phrase that needs to be deconstructed, not just phone. And it's a fundamental principle in religion. And Derrida is interested in the process and in what can be experienced, what, what, what experience can be released by exposing that. Now, deconstruction doesn't necessarily require a very, very complex philosophical analysis. Sometimes you can deconstruct what somebody says just by saying it right back to them. You can just say back what they have said to you. I'm fine today. You're fine today? Or you don't even need to turn it into a question. You're fine today. That can create a sense of, that sense of repetition. Something is being said again 
which is a central idea for Derrida. When I say something again, I ultimately expose the fact that everything that I'm ever going to say in my entire life, I'm saying again. Nothing is ever said for the first time. I'm reusing words all the time. I'm reusing phrases all the time. There's no original primordial moment of speech where I get to say something. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you understand the sentence, all of the words in it were familiar to you before you constructed it or before you listened to it. So there's no beginning, there's no point of pure origin. Everything is said again. This, this sense of things that are repeated and are said over and over and over again is very important to Derrida and it accounts for a major feature of his style which is to write in a very thick way so as you are constantly being drudged up or connotations and associations are being drudged up for you because you are engaging with something again and again. You have to read sentence after sentence time and time and time and time again. It's like reading poetry. Just very, very annoying poetry until you get used to it. Because you look at, what, you look at sentences, I, I know every word in that sentence, but I can't for the life of me figure out what the hell he's talking about. Right? It's a little bit like what people said about me. Have to. But this is, this is the central and very important concept in Derrida. So that's number one. I want to give you three, okay? And then we'll go into the text. Number two is the idea of a secret. A secret is a very, very important idea for Derrida, and it's going to be very, very important in this text. What is a secret? So I'm going to give you two examples. Example number one is something I just don't tell you anything about. There's nothing to talk about. That's not really a secret, so forget that. That's something else. That's just something I'm not telling you anything about. <laughs> But what happens, and this is very common in Israel, when you meet one of these soldiers who's in a secret unit, right? They're in, you know, in, in some commando unit or in the Mossad or something. And you ask somebody, you know, what unit are you in? So either, the, if, if he really wants to say, oh, I'm in, I'm in a tanks unit, and he's lying because he doesn't want to tell me a secret. But that's not what they do. They say, don't ask. <laughs> I'd love to tell you of Lomshan. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Then you know, wow, where is he? What's he in? Like, what does he do? What, where was he during the Lebanon War? I mean, this kind of stuff. We're very, we're very familiar with this idea, right? That when I have a secret, and I want it to be a secret, I have to tell you that there's a secret. If I don't tell you there's a secret, there's no secret. If I tell you what the secret is, then there's no secret. So I have to tell you that there is a secret, but not tell you what the secret is. Now this is a very, very important concept for Derrida. You'll see it plays out very importantly in the text. But it's also the basis of his theology. We all know about God. God's a classic example of a secret. We all know about God. We use the word all the time. We talk about God this and God that, right? What do any of us know? Don't ask. You don't. We don't. <laughs> right? It's one of the classical, those who understand, understand, but don't worry about it. This is, this is a theological concept, the concept of the secret, and it's a very, very important concept for Derrida, and you'll see that it will play out in the text that we're reading. Tool number three that I want to give you, and last one, I could go on at this for hours, because the, there are many, many, many concepts um, that he plays with, but the third one that I want to give you is the concept of a gift. 
right? A gift is an idea that Derrida finds absolutely fascinating. When I give something to somebody, it seems impossible, Livriot, it seems impossible to do so without entering into an economy of reciprocation, right? If I give you something for your birthday, so I'm waiting on my birthday, <laughs> and I, I generate debt by giving. Even when I don't, oh, you don't need to give me anything back. No, that's Polish for, you know, I'm expecting something tomorrow morning. There, it, it's very, very difficult to step outside the economy of giving and receiving when you actually give. A gift is a very, very problematic thing. One of the things that Derrida is really interested in is, the decon is that what deconstruction often does is it turns things completely on its head. So giving is actually taking, or giving is, creating, is generating debt, which is exactly the opposite of what you wanted to do. So frequently, that is something that will happen in language. You know, a secret is exactly the same thing, right? I'm telling you something so you don't know it. So I'll have, I'll have these reciprocations. I'm saying, oh, he looks just like him. And if I say he looks just like him, I, the fact that I'm saying it means that they don't look identical. Otherwise, I wouldn't need to establish that they look like each other. So this kind of reversibility is very, very important for Derrida. It plays out in language. It plays out in the way in which he understands language. And in the text that we're going to look at, it plays out as a very, very deep religious problem. How can God command man to give a sacrifice or a gift to him without then generating a debt. Or start from man. How can man give to God without generating a debt back? And can we tolerate the notion of giving something to God which is ultimately about serving our own self-interests? Can, can that work as a fundamental religious experience? So Derrida tries to answer this question. And he answers this question in a fascinating book called Donne le Mot, right? which literally translates as the gift of death. And during the course of this book, he offers four chapters. And in his four chapters, he tries to offer different phenomenologies for what it is to give and how giving could be, a, could be constructed as a religious experience. And clearly, the connection with death is, is, is very central. right? Giving, when I give death, so there's, there's, no there's no reciprocity because there's no one to give anything back to. I'm, I'm dead. Um, whatever that means. So, so Derrida is going is to struggle with this question. And he's going to struggle with this question in the context of the reading of the Akedah, of the story of the Akedah. OK? So what I want to do now is to have a look at this with you. But I want to warn you so you don't get frustrated. I want to warn you. First of all, it's difficult. And we're going to jump through. We're going, to, we're going to read selectively. But the thing that I want to warn you is that 85% of the time that I'm talking about this, I'm not actually telling you what I want to say about this text. Because Derrida, like Derrida, sets us up for a twist. Right? There's a huge twist at the end. There's a huge twist at the end. The whole thing's going to be turned on its head. So we're going to follow a path which he is, of course, in the process of establishing so as he can then twist it on us and deconstruct. Right? So there's going to be a huge twist. And I believe that it's a twist that is extremely important. 
And it actually connects, believe it or not, I'm Israeli, it connects to contemporary politics in the Middle East. Very, very powerfully, even explicitly, it connects to issues which are really contemporary. This is not, this is not an esoteric, it is an esoteric text, but it's not, it's not an irrelevant esoteric text. This is a text which I think speaks very, very relevantly, very deeply and very powerfully to some of the most controversial, disturbing and difficult issues in international politics today. So we're going for something that, even though it's off the beaten track perhaps for some of you, it is very topical. And I hope, I hope we'll get there. Mysterium Tremendum. We're at the beginning. <coughs> a frightful mystery. A secret to make you tremble. Tremble. What does one do when one trembles? What is it that makes you tremble? Derrida's playing here on Kierkegaard's reading of, of the Akedah. And he's focusing on the visceral experience of somebody who is about to encounter something holocaustal, something horrific. But it's not just a shake. It's not just a shudder. He's interested in, in, in a form of visceral response to a mystery that I know is there, but that I can't get my head around. And that makes me tremble. That's what he refers to in the next line. A secret always makes you tremble. It's the thing that you know but don't know. The thing that's exposed to you but you can't deal with because you can't crack it open. So what are you going to do? Talk about it? Analyze it? Take it to your therapist. You can't. You haven't got enough to say. You don't know enough. You're going to be given a little piece of information that's going to expose you to something, and all you can do is tremble. It's going to put you into an impossible situation. Not simply quiver or shiver, which also happens sometimes, but tremble. A quiver can, of course, manifest itself, manifest fear, anguish, apprehension of death, etc., etc. I'm not going to read on. He gives... He's, he's, he's setting us up here for all kinds of, of synonyms for tremble and trying to show us that those synonyms aren't the same thing because he wants to talk about trembling. Turn over, page 54. Top line. It suggests that violence, this is, he's talking about the experience of trembling. It suggests that violence is going to break out again. That some traumatism will insist on being repeated. As different as dread, fear, anxiety, terror, panic, or anguish remain from one another, they have already begun in the trembling, and what has provoked them continues or threatens to continue to make us tremble. Most often, we neither know what is coming upon us nor see its origin. It therefore remains a secret. Right? There's, a, there's an experience of something that we don't know where it came from. We don't know what it's about. We don't know what it means. We're just afraid of the fear. We anguish over the anguish and we tremble. We tremble in that strange repetition. Remember what I said about language being repetitious? We tremble in that strange repetition 
that ties an irrefutable past, a shock has been felt, a traumatism has already affected us, to a future that cannot be anticipated. Why can't it be anticipated? Who knows if it's ever going to happen? Who knows if it's ever going to happen? That's what we're afraid of. And anticipated but unpredictable, apprehended but, and this is why there is a future, apprehended precisely as unforeseeable. Now he's setting us up here. He's setting us up here for the experience of being told, here's your son, this is the son who you love, this is the son who's going to be the future of your people. This is the sun, remember, you go outside and you have a look and there are stars in the sky. I'm making a covenant with you. You look on the ground and you'll see there's sand. Count the grains, count the stars. Your children will be more numerous than either. They hadn't invented the Hubble telescope then. They didn't know how many stars there were. But you can have a look and see and we are going to be, we're going to build a nation together. And then in the midst of this moment of covenant, the covenant reaches its peak when Abraham has to confront a moment of anticipating an unforeseeable future. Kill that son. Why? Why should I kill that son? Give me a reason. Now the normal reading is to say, and I think, it's, I think that at least Derrida is not interested in it, I would go so far as to say that I think it's flawed. But the normal reason is to say, as we say in Hebrew, Lama, because that's what God wants you to do. And the actual experience of submitting your will to the will of God is an experience that has religious, has religious foundations, right? Because God said, do it. You do it. There's one philosopher, um, Ishayao Leibovitch, who took that as a phenomenology for the entire Jewish experience. There's no point to any kind of religious life if it's not just obeying commandments. That's the point. Don't rationalize, don't moralize. You can if it keeps you interested, but the real reason, the core, the heart of it is accepting commandment. And if that's not what it's all about, it doesn't have any meaning. But that's not the only way to read the Akedah. And what Derrida is interested in is in putting Abraham into a situation where he has to confront God. Why does he have to, have to confront God? Because he is facing the mysterium tremendum. And what does he do? He trembles. God says to him, sacrifice your son. Abraham doesn't ask why. God doesn't tell him. It's a secret. It's a secret. Now there's this tragic and pathetic moment when Isaac says to Abraham, what's going on? Where are you taking me? Where is the animal that we're going to sacrifice? Does anybody remember what Abraham's answer is? Oh, I forgot which audience I'm dealing with here. Um, can anybody give it to me in Greek? <laughs> and then Armenian, the Vulgate translation? page 58. Derrida is talking about Kierkegaard and his character, Johannes et Silentio, who is the speaker 
in his analysis of the Akedah, which is called Fear and Trembling. And the ex silentio, right, the, the sound that's coming out of silence, those of you who remember anything about Wittgenstein, this is a theme, this is a theme which, connect, which connects to, to the mystery and the limits of human thought. Kierkegaard de Silentio, the bottom line, bottom line, recalls Abraham's strange reply to Isaac when the latter asks him where the sacrificial lamb is to be found. It can't be said that Abraham doesn't respond to him. He says, God will provide. God will provide a lamb for the Holocaust. Interesting translation. Abraham thus keeps his secret at the same time as he replies to Isaac. He doesn't keep silent. And he doesn't lie. He doesn't speak non-truth, the thing that is not. In fear and trembling, Kierkegaard reflects on this double secret, that between God and Abraham, but also that between the latter and his family. God doesn't speak of what God has ordered him alone to do. He doesn't speak of it to Sarah, or to, Eli or to Eliezer, or to Isaac. He must keep the secret. That is his duty. But it is also a secret that he must keep as a double necessity. Because in the end, he can only keep it. Why? Because he himself doesn't know it. He is unaware of its ultimate rhyme and reason. He is sworn to secrecy because he is in secret. Now, before we get to the next sentence, which is going to knock the first major blow, then don't look. <laughs> You're looking. Okay, look. But before we... Absolutely not. Before we get to the next sentence... Yes, of course. Bakasha. Well, let me explain this first a second, and then, and then just let me explain a little bit, and then I'll finish the point, and then... Before we, before we get to the next sentence, and I answer your question, and then we go, and then we go on... I just want to underline that, that what Derrida has done is he has turned the encounter between Abraham and God into an encounter that really is a confrontation with the absolutely tantalizing and mysterious notion of God. Right? If we start by thinking, oh, God's this nice, cuddly guy in the sky with a big beard, and he looks like Santa Claus, and he gives out candy and forgives us our sins. So, so our, our first experience is, how, come, how can God do this? But that's not what Derrida wants. Derrida wants to deconstruct our notion of the familiarity of God. Because, truth be told, we don't know anything about God. And that doesn't mean that there isn't divine revelation. But the very process of revelation is a process which, this is complicated, but this is classic Derrida, by definition involves concealment. Because what I think I now know about God because it's been revealed to me cannot remain the same as the way it was before it was revealed to me. Because it's now become accessible to me when previously it was not accessible to me. So something that is not accessible has been concealed by the act of revelation. That's difficult. Let me give you an example. If I put something in a dark room, 
Okay? If I put something in a dark room, you walk into the room, you perhaps see something in that darkness, right? When I turn the light on, what you were seeing in the darkness is concealed by the light. Get it? The light doesn't only reveal. The light conceals what can only be in its darkness, in its form in darkness. So the act of revelation, which we might think of as turning on the light, this is a, this is a serious critique of the Enlightenment, by the way. But this is the critique of the Enlightenment. But turning on the light has the effect of concealing what was seen in the dark. So Abraham is encountering an encounter with something that is totally other because it is in secret. And that is very important for Derrida. And it's very important because of what he's going to say in the next line. But I can't tell you yet because I have a question. Yes, go ahead. But maybe I don't understand the concept of secret. And that is, I am an outsider and I know really what is going on. The chapter starts with Ah, we'll get to that, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. So I, Abraham does not know. To him it's a secret, but not to me. I know already what, what it, the process that is going on there. I want to ask you a question. If I test you, right? I'm just testing you. But I tell you to go and kill your son. I know your son. He's a lovely fellow. He told me I have allergies. <laughs> and just before you do it, I stop you and I say, no, I was just kidding. Right? But you've really done that. You've tied him up. You've got a gun loaded. He's petrified. You're shaking like hell because you love your son. You don't want to do this. And then just as you're about to pull the trigger, I say to you, I was just kidding. Stop. You think that's any less of a trauma? Look at Isaac. After this story, Isaac's a goner. He's done for. Isaac is blind. Isaac is total. Isaac is stuck in that moment of fear for the rest of his life. So whether God was testing him or not testing him, it's a really interesting question whether or not God was testing Abraham and what that means, and it could mean all sorts of things. But an ethical off the hook for God, it doesn't give. The alternative is no better than Abraham actually killing Isaac. So it doesn't get, it doesn't get God off the hook, which is why even for the reader, all that does is double back the complication of the secret. Because it tells me more, and that further revelation is a further concealment. I know I'm very frustrating, but that, no, that, that, you see what I'm saying? Okay, so this brings us to the moment that is critical, which is the next line. Because in this way, Abraham, uh, sorry, he doesn't speak, Abraham transgresses the ethical order. According to Kierkegaard, the highest expression of the ethical is in terms of what binds us to our own and to our fellows. That can be family, but also the actual community or friends of the nation. By keeping the secret, Abraham betrays ethics. His silence, or at least the fact that he doesn't divulge the secret of the sacrifice he has been asked to make, is certainly not designed to save Isaac. Wow. 
first time I saw that, <gasps> unbelievable. The purpose of the divine commandment is to get Abraham, or I can't say that. The effect of the divine commandment, as Derrida reads it, is to create for Abraham an inevitable situation in which he is obliged to transgress the ethical order. Now, this is going to get more complicated than just he's going to transgress the ethical order because he kills Isaac. right? You might want to say, I'm, not, I'm just picking on you now because of your question, but the obvious response would be to say, no, 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 don't worry. We can say ethics is God, and God is ethical. Right? He does all kinds of tests and stuff, but in the end it all works out right because God is an ethical God. right? So Abraham was being very ethical. He just had a higher order of ethics. He was not supposed to kill his son, although thou shalt not kill has not yet been commanded. Well, it depends how you interpret the story of Cain and Abel. I mean, you can go around in circles on this, but, but he's not really supposed to kill his son. It's not a good idea. We know that in the time of Abraham, there was the idol worshippers who worship Molech in Gei Ben Hinnom, right underneath Mount Moriah. <clears throat> there was a valley where the, where the god of Molech was worshipped, and Molech was this big statue with arms out like this, and underneath was a furnace called the Furnace of Tophet, and they used to pass children through Tophet and burn them up and incinerate them, and that was the way that Molech was served. We could make some kind of a historical argument that in, those, in that period, if you loved a god, then your, your higher eth ethical commandment was to make an ultimate sacrifice to that god. As much as we love our children, we love God more. It's imaginable that human beings sacrificed their children. In Abraham's time, lots of people did it. In my life, I've wanted to do it frequently. <laughs> we all know this. But, the tr that shouldn't be on the internet, straight but, but, you got me all freaked with these recordings. But, but, Derrida's not letting it go that way. He's not going to give us an ethical argument for killing your children. He's going to make it clear that killing your children is unethical, along with God. God's unethical too, because he tells Abraham to kill his child. Now, it's going to get a little bit more complicated than that, because not obeying God is also not ethical. So Abraham has no choice but to be unethical. God is trapping him in a situation in which all he can do is transgress ethics. Now, this is a theme that Derrida plugs for a couple of pages now. Right? He's going to plug it for a couple of pages before we get to the twist. But one of the things that he is really, really interested in doing is showing the absolute impossibility of applying ethics to this situation. And rather than drag you through that rather difficult bit of the text, I'm going to explain it. I'll tell you why. Ethics requires a general concern, a general principle. Right? Ethics is a societal system. It's very human, and it's a societal system. A, 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 a value that threatens the capacity of a society to function well, whatever that means, is an unethical value. And a society that serves its own best interests collectively is an ethical society. Now, 
ethics has to be general, right? So I'm talking about values, goodness, kindness, generosity. All of these are values, and by their very nature, they have to be collective. That's Greek thinking, basically, right? So I can walk down the street, and I can see a poor person on the street corner, and I can say to that poor person, do you need money? Right? Now, there's two ways of looking at this. Either I'm saying that's the right thing to do, because that's how society, that's how society understands what it is to be ethical or kind or generous or any of those things. And I'm serving a greater general abstract principle when I say, I'm a good person, I'm a charitable person, I'm going to give you that money, general. There's an entirely different experience, which is the encounter with that person. I've got no idea if this is in the, in the interests of the general good. right? I don't necessarily second guess and go, hmm, is he going to spend this on drugs? Maybe it's not such an ethical idea to give him this money because he's just going to go and blow it and, on drink. Well, drink isn't a waste of money, but drugs is. And he's gonna, it depends if he gets whiskey or tequila, but he, he's going to strike that one as well. He's going he's gonna to have that money from me, not because of some general principle, but because I am directly claimed by him in front of me. I can't walk past. He's right there. It's interpersonal. It's what Buber would refer to as an I-thou situation. When God commands Abraham to sacrifice his son, the moment is unique. It is singular. Not because it's unprecedented, not because no one has ever done anything like it either before or after, but because God's commandment to Abraham fills all the space of his being. It fills all the space of his being and by its very nature, it has to be unethical. It's a transgression against ethics because ethics is inadequate to the task of explaining why man responds to a secret thrown at him by God. Anything less mysterious is not an encounter with God. Anything less direct is just humanism. Abraham has to be trapped. So if we, if we have a look at page 51. Sixty-one. Sorry. Second paragraph. Such is the apparaia of responsibility. One always risks not managing to accede to the concept of responsibility in the process of forming it. For responsibility, we would no longer dare speak of the universal concept of responsibility, demands on the one hand an accounting, a general answering for oneself with respect to the general, and before the generality, hence the idea of substitution, and on the other hand, uniqueness, absolute singularity, hence non-substitution, non-repetition, silence, and secrecy. If you didn't understand, it doesn't matter because here he's going to say it. What I am saying here about responsibility can also be said about decision. The ethical involves me in substitution, as does speaking. 
What's substitution? It means there's a general principle, and there are all kinds of little examples. So the general principle is kindness, and little examples of people being kind to each other substitute for the general, the general principle. Whence the insolence of the paradox? For Abraham, Kierkegaard declares, the ethical is a temptation. The temptation is to do the ethical thing with all the negative connotations of temptation. He must therefore resist it. He keeps quiet in order to avoid the moral temptation, which under the pretext of calling him to responsibility, to self-justification, would make him lose his ultimate responsibility along with his singularity make him lose his unjustifiable, secret, and absolute responsibility before God. God has commanded him, he doesn't know why, it doesn't make sense, it has to be wrong in order for the encounter to actually force upon him the experience of knowing that whatever God is, he's not the same as people. It's an encounter with something else. Just to jump a little bit, the ethical can therefore end up making us irresponsible. Rather than responsibility, it is a source of irresponsibility. Now, now we get close to the twist. Derrida's going to say something pretty weird now. If up until now it wasn't, it wasn't. Oh, I've forgotten, my, I've forgotten this, the humor in this audience. Derrida is going to force upon us the notion that Abraham hates Isaac. Now, to be honest with you, it's the hardest, it's the hardest little, little piece of this text. But Derrida is going to insist that Abraham hates Isaac. Now, before you settle down into that, he's going to twist it on us. If he hates Isaac, then that means, basically, for Derrida, that he's brought himself to the condition in which he's prepared to kill him. You don't kill people who you don't hate. At least that's the way Derrida looks at it. Maybe that's not true. But he perhaps thinks of the, the psychological preparation that's necessary he has to get to a position of hatred in order to be able to kill Isaac. But if he hates him, then it's not such a sacrifice to kill him. So he has to love him. So he has to hate him and love him at the same time. Because if he doesn't love him, there's no sacrifice. And if he doesn't hate him, he, he, there's no sacrifice. Somehow, Derrida, I think in one of the less successful passages in this text, tries to create another paradox, which I think works a little bit less well because killing without hatred is imaginable to us. But ultimately, what he's trying to say is that the idea of killing Isaac has to get out of the economy of giving. Because he needs to be able to give the child to God. 
But if he gives the child to God who he loves, he creates a debt. God owes him. So he has to hate the child. Because if he doesn't hate the child, he's going to create a debt with God. So he has to hate the child, so as killing the child avoids the debt with God. But if he kills the child and hates the child, then it's not a sacrifice. So there's no giving. And as you go round and round and round in circles, and I can see you shaking your head and tutting and feeling uncomfortable, and I agree with you, what Derrida is basically trying to say in this moment of the text is that the purpose of the Akedah is to put Abraham into an absolutely impossible situation. He's in an impossible situation. And we understand that. The mechanism of that is powerful. Abraham has got no way to go. He can't do the right thing. He can't do the wrong thing. His encounter with God has left him mystified, confused, unable to act, unable to serve, unable to benefit. He's completely screwed. And here comes the twist. Because as you're reading this, this passage, you get the sense that Abraham is being pushed more and more and more and more, progressively more, into an acute, acute, extreme, unique situation that has got nothing to do with the life of most people. And then he turns it round. Page 67. In terms of the moral of morality, let us here insist upon what is too often forgotten by the moralizing moralists and good consciences who preach to us with assurance every morning and every week in newspapers and magazines, on the radio and on television, about the sense of ethical or political responsibility. Philosophers who don't write ethics are failing in their duty. One often hears. Apparently, the, the, the news in France is very intelligent. <laughs> and the first duty of the philosopher is to think about ethics, to add a chapter on ethics to each of his or her books, and in order to do that, to come back to Kant as often as possible. <laughs> what the knights of good conscience don't realize is that the sacrifice of Isaac illustrates, if it is the word in the case of such a nocturnal mystery, the most common and everyday experience of responsibility. <coughs> the story is no doubt monstrous, outrageous, barely conceivable. A father is ready to put to death his beloved son, his irreplaceable loved one, and, the, and that because the other, the great other in the sky, I added the in the sky, asks him or orders him without giving the slightest explanation an infanticide father who hides what he's going to do from his son and from his family without knowing why. What could be more abominable? What mystery could be more frightful vis-a-vis -vis love, humanity, the family, or morality? But isn't this also the most common thing? What the most cursory, I have to turn the page, examination of the concept of responsibility cannot fail to affirm Duty or responsibility binds me to the other, to the other as other, and ties me in my absolute singularity to the other as other. 
Now that's difficult, so I'm going to give you a great example. Bottom of page 69. This is not just a figure of style or an effect of rhetoric. According to Chronicles 3.8, the place where this occurs, where the sacrifice of Abraham or of Isaac took, takes place, I'm jumping. This place where death is given or offered is the place where Solomon decided to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. Also the place where God appeared to Solomon's father, David. However, it's also the place where the Grand Mosque of Jerusalem stood, the place called the Dome of the Rock near the Grand Al-Aqsa Mosque, where the sacrifice of Ibrahim is supposed to have taken place and from where Muhammad mounted his, source, his horse for paradise after his death. It is just above the destroyed Temple of Jerusalem and the Wailing Wall, not far from the Way of the Cross, the Via Dolorosa. It's therefore a holy place, but also a place that is in dispute radically and rapidly fought over by all the monotheisms, by all the religions of the unique and transcendent God of the absolute other. These three monotheisms fight over it. I told you we'd get to contemporary Israeli politics. <coughs> it is useless to deny this in terms of some wide-eyed ecumenism. They make war with fire and blood. Basically, he's going to put ahead and tell us that the whole of the world is Mount Moriah. But let me show you where he makes his point, I think, rather amusingly. Derrida goes on to describe the day-to-day -day experience of feeding his cat. Yes, I did say that. And he asks this bizarre question. Have a look at the bottom of page 70. 71, the top, let's go from there. What binds me to singularities, to this one or that one, male or female, rather than, this, rather than that one or this one, remains finally unjustifiable. As unjustifiable as the infinite sacrifice I make at each moment. These singularities represent others, a wholly other form of alterity one other or some other persons, but also places, animals, languages. How would you ever justify the fact that you sacrifice all the cats in the world to the cat that you feed at home every morning for years, whereas other cats die of hunger at every instant? Not to mention other people. How would you justify your presence here, speaking one particular language, rather than there, speaking to others in another language? And yet we also do our duty by behaving thus. There is no language, no reason, no generality, or meditation, or mediation, sorry, to justify this ultimate responsibility which leads me to absolute sacrifice. Absolute sacrifice that is not the sacrifice of irresponsibility on the altar of responsibility, but the sacrifice of the most imperative duty in favor of another absolutely imperative duty binding me to the holy other. Now, I'm going to take a couple of minutes to explain this, because this is a big deal. That's <coughs> it for the readings. I'm not going to read anymore. What Derrida has done in this passage is to turn God into the voice that deconstructs human ethics. God rather than being a commanding force that tells Abraham to do something, 
Because we don't understand a word of this commandment. It's, he's, he's given us this discourse of silence that makes no sense to anybody and becomes unclear to everybody. God has turned up in this story to call into question all of our responses. Our first response is outrage. How can I make a sacrifice like that? And then we realize that that outrage is an outrage that's based on something general. We don't do things like that. We don't do things like that. And then we realize, well, actually we make all sorts of sacrifices all the time. There's plenty of people in our society who we are prepared to sacrifice. We sacrifice them for the common good. We say we need to accomplish a, some kind of a strategic goal. And there are people whose lives we very deliberately decide to sacrifice in order to accomplish that goal. And we define that goal as ethical. If the goal, some kind of a strategic goal, a war, some kind of an incursion, can be explained away in, ethic, in ethical terms, then the sacrifice that we make is okay. It's fine. And if the collective resources, there's only so big a cake, and we have to slice it up, and we have to slice it up fairly, and so when we make decisions about the allocation of collective resources, we sacrifice people. If there's only a certain amount of money available for, for, for government funding for medicine, Right? I'm talking about in Israel, we have this... I don't want to start talking about health bills in America right now. <laughs> Too complicated. Not going there. But we have, a, we have a system of providing drugs for people who suffer from diseases. Government pays... The government pays for the treatment of certain diseases. And how do they decide what to do? They put together an ethics committee, and the ethics committee decides which drugs can be most helpful to the largest number of people. And if your specific condition is not in this basket, this package, <clears throat> then the government doesn't say it to you, but it does say it to you. We've decided to sacrifice you for the common good. That's exactly what it means. It's pretty important to recognize that nations, and he's talking here about nations, fundamentally believe in their own right to kill their own civilians. We do it all the time. We sacrifice life every time we make a choice. We sacrifice resources every time we make a choice. Every time we give them to one place, we, we don't give them to another. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm standing up here right now sacrificing my own children's education because I'm not teaching them, I'm teaching you. <laughs> Is that ethical? Is that moral? So Derrida is pointing out to us, I think, the most incredibly profound idea, which is that God is willing to be a hypocrite in order to wean us off the belief that we are ethical. In order to wean us off the belief that ethics is even of any value as a system, 
unless we think of it in all of its contingencies. God is making this ultimate sacrifice. He's giving the gift of death to humanity. He's giving the ultimate violation of humanity as a gift to humanity. The second you are born, this mysterious secret God tells you, I'm going to kill you. As my dentist says to me when I open my mouth, he looks at me and he says, Alec, you're going to die, but not from this. <laughs> but he's right. He's right. This fundamental experience of mortality which God puts on us all is the ultimate, ultimate violation of everything that we think is ethical. And God tells us, I'm an unethical God. And by presenting himself as a fundamental contradiction of everything that we tend to think about him, by presenting himself, by implicating himself in the ultimate troubling story of ethical compromise, and not just by doing it himself, but he drags Abraham into this impossible situation. Derrida comes along and says what God does to Abraham is definitive of the entire human experience. And what Abraham does is to engage with his single responsibility. It's an impossible one, but he has a single responsibility to God and to Isaac, and he cannot deal with them both, and it's a trauma. But it's the trauma of human life. Now what this gives us, and I'm drawing to my close, what this gives us is a take on the idea of Judaism, if we look at the Bible, as a religion that articulates its ethics in, hypo in hypocritical terms. A religion that articulates its law in hypocritical terms. Or if I use Deridian language for it, a law that auto-deconstructs. In other words, it does not let itself establish itself as a system that we can confuse for goodness. It's just not that simple. Jewish law commands us terrible things, along with wonderful things. Jewish law contradicts itself. It says things and then it takes them back. It says things very often, then it finds a way around them. What Derrida says at the end of this essay is that when the Christians called the Pharisees hypocrites, the word Pharisaic came to mean hypocritical. That's right. That's our system. And better that way. Because the absolute encounter with the absolute God is always a secret. It's always something that we can't completely understand. And as a result, the only way we can deal with it is to recognize its self-contradictory nature. It's hypocrisy. It's riddled with hypocrisy. It's wonderfully riddled with hypocrisy. And as such, God functions as the great deconstructor in the sky who comes along and says to us, you think you're ethical? Widen your lens. Look a little bit further. See who's paying for your ethics. See who's paying for you to feel good. Oh, you want to follow my commandments? Look at the sacrifices you're making. Don't feel that simple about it. Don't think 
that you can grab hold of me and make me subservient to the ethics that make you feel good. That's what God is saying to Abraham in the story of the Akedah as Derrida reads it. Now as such, it is a scathing criticism of Western ethics, but I think it's also a striking insight into the very nature of the biblical text. And finally, when he connects it with the Pharisaic, it ultimately, it ultimately presents us with a picture of the rabbinic project. And let's admit it, we always have this problem. Rabbis come along and say, oh, it doesn't say that in the Torah. Right? They're always changing everything and turning it upside down and changing all the rules. Right? Don't eat a kid in your mother's, don't cook a kid in your mother's milk. So I'm supposed to keep milk and fleshik separate from each other? Don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Oh, I'm supposed to have separate cutlery? Milchik and fleshik cutlery? Don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. Oh, I'm supposed to have separate dishwashers? Milchik and fleshik? <laughs> God says to Moses, have it your way, do what you like. The law, the law, doesn't, the law doesn't, doesn't allow us to ever make complete sense of it because it's constantly playing with itself and undermining itself and reworking itself. And by doing that, the ultimate accomplishment of Jewish law is that it cannot fall into the trap of being ethics. And if it can't fall into the trap of being ethics, it might just have something divine about it. What that is, I can't tell you, it's a secret. Thank you very, very much. You had a question. Yeah, a question I had was, but God lets Abraham off the hook by... No, he doesn't. At the end of the story. No, he doesn't. In, in the text, he says, you don't, don't kill yourself. First of all, there's, there's a problem here. There are, there, are, there are two or three problems here. First of all, God does not tell Abraham not to kill his son. The angel. An angel. And Abraham is very happy to listen to the angel, right? Isaac comes out of the story very traumatized, as I said before. Nobody's let off the hook here. The story, is, the story remains a crisis, and the truth is we're still struggling with it. We haven't, we haven't figured it out. But there's another thing that I think is hinted at very, very powerfully in the text. It's a hint, but it's a powerful hint. If you look at the end of the chapter, Abraham goes home on his own. Isaac is not there. Now, of course, Augustine has this brilliant reading of it that Abraham, of course, Jews refer to it as the binding of Isaac and Christians refer to it as the sacrifice of Isaac. And the reason is because Augustine argues that the reason Isaac is not mentioned at the end is because Abraham actually killed him. And then after Sarah died from grief, Isaac was resurrected. And so the whole story becomes a pre, a, a pre, a Christological prefiguration for. But the, um, just within the, the Jewish readings of the text, the absence of Isaac at the end gives us a sense that whatever has happened here, it's very clear at the beginning, they're going together, they don't come back together. Something very, very profound has happened here and it's never resolved. So I don't think anybody gets left off the hook. The story remains troubling and tragic. And, and what you're doing is, is trying to make it ethical when you let, when you let Abraham off the hook, so God comes out being this good guy in the sky after all. Yes? Uh, you mentioned that uh, there was no difference in the, in the story if, uh, whether, Abra whether Isaac was killed or not killed. Yeah, that's what I was just saying now. Yeah. Okay, however, uh, if Isaac was killed, there would be no progeny from Abraham and Sarah. 
regardless of the trauma, since he was not killed, there is progeny <coughs> from Abraham and Sarah and down the line. Well, that issue has a precedent, which is the story of Cain and Abel. Right? We've got this narrative that's going all the way through the Bible of, of, of couples and, their, and pairs, brothers, or sometimes it's cousins, right? and, and, or half-brothers. And one of them is going to be chosen, one is rejected. One of them is chosen, one is, and one is rejected. Now, what seems to happen all the time is, first of all, all the, all the women who are supposed to have children are having a really hard time. Right? That happens over and over and over again. So the progeny is constantly being threatened. And there are different ways in which the progeny gets threatened. So the Akedah is one of the examples of the threat to the progeny. In other cases, it works the other way, right? Because when Cain kills Abel, the progeny is threatened. So Adam has to have another son. So Shet is born, and that's one way of getting around it. Uh, with Abraham and Lot, it's, it, it, the same thing happens, right? Because Abraham, there it's not progeny, there it's the land. Abraham says to Lot, take your pick. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If Lot had picked the other side, then Abraham would have lost the land of Israel, which might have been good for the oil business, but it, you know, for the Jewish <laughs> but, but the promised land would not have, would not have come to the... So there, there are constantly these ploys in which we encounter a threat to the ongoing process, which is part of the dependency, the narrative of dependency, you know, the, the image of needing God to keep the story going. So, so the Akedah, in that sense, falls into the same trope. And had it happened that way, so there's another way, right? Abraham has, has and, and the Bible actually goes on to give us all sorts of, you know, narratives of, of birth that follow the story of the Akedah. There are other children. You know, it's so difficult at the beginning, and then there are other children. So I don't think, I don't think that's, that, that's the issue here. The issue is that, is that, is that we, we, we reach the moment of crisis. And the moment of crisis, time and time and time and time again, is when, you know, that spike of God's presence comes in and, and disturbs the flow of the narrative. It gets in the way and makes it problematic time and time and time again. That's really a theme that I think runs all the way through the book of Genesis. Okay? Yes? I hope I'm not bringing up something uh, too complex, but uh, you said that this... Hit me. <laughs> well, I'll do my best. I'm sure it's not a unique idea on my part. Um, you said that this... Uh, story uh, relates so much to today's world. Absolutely. And I was thinking of the Muslim uh, concept of um, suicide um, against other human beings that they don't know, don't, but the belief suicide that bombings. God that God has commanded them, which it's not ethical, but... Okay, so, thank you for asking the question, first of all. Very important question. We're trying to solve these kinds of problems in the world today by trying to impose an ethical standard that's going to be binding for everybody and which defines the high ground and the low ground in ethical terms in a situation of enmity and conflict, right? So they do things like that, we don't do things like that, and therefore, therefore we are on higher ethical ground. Okay, now, first of all, that's a bad strategy. 
So in technical terms, it's a bad strategy. And the, and the flotilla incident, which I can't understand why it's not pronounced flotilla, because tortilla is pronounced tortilla, so flotilla should be. But the flotilla incident is a classic example of that, right? Because we felt that we were on the moral high ground, and the rest of the world, or a significant chunk of the rest of the world, just swept it out, swept it out from under our feet. And we can protest as much as we like the ethics and the morality of how we behaved. Ethics and morality are, are going to be reworked by other, by other people and produce outcomes that don't necessarily serve our interests. So it's not really a good strategy. But much more important than the fact that it's not a good strategy, it's not actually, it's not actually a defensible strategy in, in, in philosophical terms. Because your problem is not that they're immoral. That's not your problem. Your problem is that they're your enemy. Because there's all kinds of immoral things going on in the world that don't touch us and we don't pay any attention to them. There's all sorts of stuff going on in Sudan and Sri Lanka and America and even in Israel, I'm told. Um, I, I've never seen anything, but I'm told. And, 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 and we don't care. We don't care. We're not bothered about it because we're not, we don't perceive it as a threat. Our issue is not their immorality. Our issue is that, is that when we think in familial terms, family terms, about the Jewish people getting blown up on buses in Jerusalem, so, so we're threatened by it. So either we, have to, we, have to, we can't confuse these categories. We're not going to be able to hold the ethical high ground because the ethical high ground is subject to, to determination by whoever has the microphone. But not only are we not going to hold the ethical high ground, the ethical high ground won't help us solve our real problem which is not that they are unethical, but that they are our enemies. And if we don't want them to be our enemies, we have to solve that problem. And that problem will not be solved by ethical arbitration. Because they're not, they're not going to go there with us. They're not going to go there with us. That you can't make an argument for that being non-ethical that they can't counter with an argument about the Israeli occupation of the West Bank being non-ethical. Every victim can articulate his own ethical high ground. And that just perpetuates conflict. It doesn't help actually solve the problem that you want to solve. So I just wouldn't go there. I don't think, I don't think, I don't think that's the issue. And I think we get that from Derrida. I think it's a very profound message. He's not saying there's no ethics. He's not saying that. He's saying ethics isn't God. And therefore, ethics is contingent. He's deconstructing ethics. He's showing how it, how it depends on all sorts of contingencies, which means I'm only going to look at a lens that's this big with, with, with certain cultural standards, with certain things that have been agreed upon by a certain group of people at a certain time, and which are ultimately going to change. And they do change all the time, in my lifetime. The difference between the ethics of homosexuality when I was a kid and the ethics of homosexuality today, 180 degree spin. There's just no, there's just no comparison. Right? It went from being an abomination to an outrage if you're homophobic. That's very, very significant. In my particular little niche of a, of a narrow-minded Orthodox community that I live in, we had the same thing. Women studying the Talmud. When I was a kid, it was a total abomination. And now, a woman who doesn't study Talmud in my community, she's ignorant. Right? That's a, a huge turn. And it was an ethical issue. You bet it was an ethical issue. So these things are going to be shifting all the time. Yeah. And when we recognize that they're contingent and that they're shifting, we recognize that they're not universal. And if they're not universal, they won't help us solve our problems of people who have other cultural convictions. That's, that's my take on that one. Yes? If, if you're going to consider all these things, 
wouldn't you end up with every decision that you just become paralyzed about making a decision because everything has these ramifications of sacrifice and uh, the non-ethics of ethics, or that everything, every decision can be justified, like these gangsters that come in and kill innocent people are solving the housing situation, or something like this. That you, I mean, that's unethical. How can you say something? So, um, how do you ever then function? Okay, I think I think I think we need to frame the question. I think we need to frame the question. The question that we're asking is how does the discourse of ethics get affected when you throw religion into the pot, right? That's the question that we're asking. And it's very pertinent to, to, to issues of contemporary conflict in the Middle East, right? But how does the discourse about ethics get affected when you throw religion into the pot? Now, one of the major projects of modern religion has been to align religion with ethics, right? What ultimately happens is, very quickly, it's not ultimately, that you have a reversal. And your reversal is that you're actually just aligning, you're just dictating ethical messages to religion. Right? What happens is that religion follows ethics. It's not, you're not even aligning it, you're just finding ethical, ethical language and putting a little bit of chicken soup on it to make it sound part of the tradition. Now, that project is a project that allows us to feel very comfortable and very certain that the things that we believe in are part of our tradition and they come from God. Now, Derrida, who is radical, right? He's a radical thinker. He's also a secular thinker. He is arguing, he's not arguing against religion, but he's describing in this essay a completely different way of thinking about religion. Which is to argue that religion, rather than telling us what is ethical, it disturbs our sense of comfort with our own experience of the ethical. God is a very disturbing idea. Very true, by the way, in Christianity as well. Jesus is a very disturbing fellow. <laughs> Leave your parents, leave your family, go away and follow me. But I want to be with my... Leave it. It's very disturbing. Jesus is a disturbing fellow. Religion disrupts our sense of comfort in the world and keeps us, keeps us fresh. It keeps us sensitive. That's the way that Derrida is presenting it to us. So what we are left with is not a way of dictating... He isn't a philosopher. He's not going to dictate the ethics of a situation. He's going to expose the contingencies that are concealed in every situation that you think you can feel complacent about. And when he does it, what is so striking in this essay is that he then suggests that that's the way the rabbis work. That's the Pharisaic approach. It's to expose the contingencies. There's always an argument. There's always a debate. There's always an alternative. We always get the sense that things are getting turned over and over and over. That's what rabbinic discourse does. And it leaves us with a sense that any time we make a decision on Jewish law, it's a compromise. We've had to, not a compromise, but we've had to make a practical choice to select something that we're going to pick out of a system that's too big for us to ever manage. It's basically the same as feeding your cat. So we've got 
the teachings of Bet Hillel and the teachings of Bet Shammai, and they're arguing with each other. Everybody works. Right? We're going to do one thing. Because I'm going to feed my cat. It's the same structure. So the idea, it's very important to see this. The idea is, that, is not to dictate a moral system. He's not trying to give us an alternative moral system. He's trying to expose and deconstruct the contingencies in our system. And he's calling that the role of religion, which I think is a fascinating idea. All right. One more. One yes. Question. Who? Who? Yeah. Last question. Go ahead. Well, I don't know if this is more of a comment than a question. I don't know. Governor Schwarzenegger is giving out uh, welfare checks and asking people to um, uh, promise by signing um, a letter that uh, they will use the money for their families. And uh, there's no way of uh, following up on it. He hasn't asked them. There's no way. There's no accountability. There's no accountability. Some of them go to Indian casinos and use the checks for gambling. Mm -hmm. So uh, the point is, there is a. Uh, it doesn't. It's unethical. And he's trying to build responsibility in them. I'm not sure how I'm, how, I'm, how I'm supposed to respond. Sounds to me like you're turning over a contemporary issue and yeah, trying to apply, apply the model that a model that I'm that I'm yeah. applying. My my rule of thumb for you would be: listen to what if if you hear a rabbi talking about it, <laughs> um, see see what see what's happening there. Do religious do religious thinkers have the right to to offer solutions to such things in the name of God? Um, and if they do. And, or if they present themselves as doing so, be suspicious. <laughs> Thank you very, very much. Thank you very much. A lot to think about. So it's good we had the uh, six-month break, right? Yeah. Alec will be back in January for the next lecture. <laughs> Actually, the next program is... Uh, Tomorrow night, which I believe is Friday night, so it'll be Shabbat, um, Alec will be the guest speaker at Congregation B'nai Israel in Tustin. Uh, if you'd like to uh, attend the program, it'll be after services and after dinner. You're welcome to join us at the synagogue, and I'll, I'll be there, and she's going to be there for services at 6 o'clock. If you want to have dinner and you haven't made a reservation, you need to call the synagogue. It's on the information sheet. Um, and uh, make a reservation and pay the synagogue. Topic for tomorrow night, Alec, is Man's Quest for God, Heschel, and the Religious Experience of Prayer. I assume it's a little different than tonight's program. Oh, much more. <laughs> and then... We'll sing. We'll sing. Alec actually will be leading, leading Kabbalah Shabbat. So if you haven't heard Alec Davin, I suggest you show up at 6 o'clock. If, if you have heard Alec Davin, I know you will show up at 6 o'clock. Um, and then Saturday after services at CBI, Faith and Prayer in an Age of Doubt. This time with a handout by Dawkins. Uh, and, and I think, uh, Andy, you may have heard this speech, presentation at, uh, at uh, Beth Jacob a few months ago. Without Dawkins. Without Dawkins. So you've got to come back and see it with Dawkins. And Avi, um, I think you can show up after the um, FIFA US game and tell us the score and, and participate in the program. With that, we handed out some um, information of how you can support CSP. So there's some envelopes that has information in it. If you haven't supported CSP yet for our upcoming year, please do so. 
so that we can continue to bring the best thinkers in the world to Orange County. If you came late, I told you that uh, our summer scholar is not Alec. He is the, he's a scholar, but he's not our summer scholar, just happens it's to be summer. here. Is it summer already? Yeah. Alec is the, uh, this is the uh, one month scholar, pro our ninth annual one month scholar program part two, because he had to leave. Our summer scholar is uh, Rabbi Saul Berman, who's coming in August, August 15th through 19th. You'll all get information about that. With that, Alec, you'll stick around a little bit, say hi to your friends, and I gotta take you back. He's a few hours off because of the time zone from Houston, Texas. And I look forward to seeing you all this weekend. Sunday morning is a very special program, Judaism and Feminism. But you will not get through the Sea Island Gate if you haven't signed up. So if you wanna come, very limited space, you have to email me tonight, okay? With that, everyone, you are free to go home and think about deconstructionism. Thank you. Is there a handout for Sunday? Yeah, I don't think we have a handout for Sunday.